a lot of you don't know me. My name's Edmund. Um, I, I've been doing a, um, a little bit of teaching around the theology of the heart and um, being conscious of it. I'm going to have to cut back a little bit on what I have done this morning, so I apologize if it does come across sometimes a tiny bit disjointed. It's because I'm just trying to skip through a couple of areas, but um, I'll do my best um, and um, see how that goes. Um, one of the things that I, I really, uh, in, in, in just preparing for today, <clears throat> was again struck by that there often is a misunderstanding about what the Old Testament is or does as relative to the New Testament. There's sometimes there's confusion about it. Um, I've seen in terms of all my Christian walk, when you look over church history, people tend to often major too much in one or too, or too little in the other. In other words, that they'll tend to make themselves totally New Testament orientated without learning what God wants us to learn from the Old Testament, or they tend to root themselves in the Old Testament and forget whatever the New Testament doctrine is about it. And the books really do need each other. And um, this morning, I think, and it's quite appropriate that we had children today, I'm going to deal with a, probably one of the most, and it's a very big block of scripture, and I could dissect this in a thousand ways and probably preach for a month on it. Um, I see Ursula panic in her eyes, but no, don't worry, I'm not going to do that. Um, but um, it's, it's about David and Absalom, which is probably one of the biggest uh, stories we have about a father-son relationship. Um, a very tragic one, actually. Um, but it's one thing I do love very much about the Old Testament is that uh, it's because the New Testament is more doctrinally orientated, but the Old Testament really does get into character. In the New Testament, for example, we're not sure when you talk about Saul and Barnabas, sorry, um, what's Saul? Paul, sorry. Paul and Barnabas, when they had their split over Mark, uh, over John Mark, we don't know why that happened. We, we have some idea, but we don't really know the dynamics of what went through. But in the Old Testament, we really do know what went on. We really can see into the heart. Um, God really exposes the motives and a lot of the things that are there. And so as a result, there's no hiding in the Old Testament. It's something I miss a little in the New Testament when I read it. But the Old Testament is ruthless, I think, in exposing of people's hearts and where they're at and their motives and things like that. And so for that reason, I really felt to focus on this today. I've also been drawn through to Psalm 3, which I feel is a psalm that is very appropriate, and I'll come to that a little bit later. But that was the psalm that David wrote when he was fleeing from Absalom and Absalom had taken over the kingdom. So, a little bit about the, um, the people that are involved here. Um, this is a pivotal time in Israel's history. Um, David was the first king that had actually been established really properly. I mean, there had been Saul before him. But David was the first one that really unified the kingdom in, in a significant way. He also was a very strong, inspiring leader. He had all, he had a ton of gifts. It was him who actually set up, when you look from further um, Israeli history, he set up all the structures that everybody followed on. He set up the laws, he introduced worship, he set up the administrative structures of, of everything. He expanded the territory of Israel ten times. So if you can think of him as a captain of industry, he's one of those guys that comes into business and takes it on and grows a small company into ten times the size that it was. And so he was facing probably in himself, if you think about it in that context, well, who is he going to hand on to? As a king, he knew he had to appoint someone from the brotherly line. Um, the Germans have a, the German business structure is, is very family orientated in, in the way it works. And um, there's a saying in Germany, uh, I've done a little bit of work there, that says the first generation establish, establishes it, the second generation builds it, and the third generation squanders it. 
And um, it's true, I think, in terms of um, the way that um, these things work. And so David had this whole sense of that he had to know whoever was going to take over from him who would carry on building what he wanted. He had brought the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem, so he had it there, but he had not built the temple. And so the person who was going to follow him had to establish the whole structure for worship for the kingdom. So he was very concerned. It was one of the things that was always a motive in his mind. But like a father and like a person who'd been at the top for quite a while, he'd had a lot of challenges in his life. He had, just before this period, um, committed adultery with Bathsheba. And it's often a question, we, we don't know, when you look at politicians or you look at life or maybe in your own life, you can sit down and say, well, why on earth did I do something as stupid as that? There are decisions we make along the way. And I, I'm not sure quite of what it was, but there is, in a sense, you get a little bit of a weariness in David, that he's been a big successful man, he's led the kingdom, he's established it, he's got an army that does all the fighting for him. And it was in that context that he one day, not deciding to participate anymore, he wanders up on a roof and sees Bathsheba. And so basically commits a, a horrendous crime of murdering one of his original generals, one of the original people that came out with him in the, in the desert, as well as takes this guy's wife. Um, and, you know, you, you would think, how can a man like that make that type of mistake? And I think it was a flaw in David that he tended to isolate himself. When the cares and the concerns of the world were around him, he withdrew. And we see this throughout his life more and more. When you go right through to the end, he withdraws himself more and more. As the responsibilities become heavy, he doesn't tend to open up and share those responsibilities. Part of that is because of the structure of the day. People expected kings to be super kings. They expected them to be demigods and, and manage all these things. But in David, this is something which he does. He tends to withdraw. And I think that's one of the first lessons I think anybody who leads anything must understand that it is a lonely place, leadership. In whatever form you lead, if you are in charge of a business or you're in charge of account, um, I'm just dealing at the moment with trying to win an account which is worth several million that was coming in. And I remember having a very young guy about a couple of years ago saying to me, you know, I just want to take this team on, I want to go with something. And I said to him, you know, get your roots right, get your foundation, make sure you have the knowledge. And I remember him chomping at the bit and moaning, you know, really complaining week after week after week. I didn't get promoted, etc. And eventually, you know what happened? He got promoted. And then three weeks later or four weeks later, they said to him, right, you're in charge of this account, go with it. And he said, well, who's going to help me? And they said, no one, you're in charge. And I remember him picking up the phone and saying to me, I don't know what to do, because I suddenly realized the buck stops here. I'm suddenly at the top of my section and there's no way forward. And that whole sense of personal accountability is a very lonely place. And as a parent, certainly as a father, um, you realize that. <laughs> When your child is growing up and your child is behaving in a certain way, there's only one place the buck stops, and that's with you. You can't make excuses about it. It's your baby to deal with. And how you deal with that is very important. A sign of maturity is that those who lead well, in times of crisis, reach out to have other people help them. A sign of weakness of leadership is you become much more opaque and focused and single-visioned and tunnel-visioned. Um, and so it's something which I think that David was in that place. The other challenge David had at this time is he had his son Absalom. Now Absalom was, by all accounts, a really good-looking Jewish boy. He was tall. He had hair all the way down to here. I know that's, that's the, my thing, but I know there's some people who like long hair, 
Mayor was watching a little bit of footage of Woodstock the other day. You know, the original Woodstock, 1969, where most people weren't born. They were around, I don't know if Aquibus was even born in 1969. In fact, he wasn't. But, um, the, um, you know, it was long hair, it was, you know, the peace generation, it was everything else like that. Absalom had this beautiful hair. The Bible says he was without blemish. So he was, he was a beautiful boy. He was a beautiful man. He was bright. He was intelligent. He was incredibly capable. Shrewd. I mean, the most shrewd guy. And on top of it, not only was he shrewd, he was also patient. And I'll illustrate that a little bit later. And it falls on a man who's so extraordinarily gifted to have a father that is a bit remote. And how does he cope with that? The answer is very badly. But that is the context in which it happens. So, the situation is one day, um, David in this sort of remote state, now people did have access to David, it's not a question he wasn't accessible, but people sort of had to have an audience with a king, you know, that's what you have to do, you have to book a time and come and do it. My poor wife sometimes has to put up with it, I'm running between things of trying to say, when can I speak to you? And sometimes I feel very bad about it, because if you're running a, working in a business, you sometimes feel you have the time, and it's one of the things you always have to juggle in terms of, in terms of making time. And David was one of those guys. He was very removed. And his son, Amon, who was the, his successor to the throne, not as beautiful a boy as Absalom, but he was the successor to the throne. Amon comes to him. And Amon asks David, out of the blue, you know, I'm not feeling that well. Um, I've got some issues. Can you arrange for my sister, my half-sister, Tamar, to come and counsel me, help me out? And David thinks this is a bit odd. But he doesn't, probably because he's too busy, he doesn't think through the implications of what he does. And so he says, okay. And of course the reason that Amon wanted Tamar was that he had improper designs on her. Um, in fact, very improper designs on her. And she comes to him, uh, Amon traps her and physically assaults her. And then not only physically assaults her, throws her out and treats her like she's nothing and rubbish. So he disgraces her and he ruins her. He basically ruins her life in that moment. Because women in that status, had, in that time, had no status, really. And a woman who was defiled would have been useless. You couldn't marry them off, you couldn't do anything with them. So, you know, it was a question. And he does this cold-bloodedly and deliberately. And how does David respond? He's angry. How many fathers out there are people who get angry but actually do nothing? I don't know if anybody here falls into that camp. A lot of bluster, a lot of, you know, going around. In politics, you see it all the time. The army goes on standby, this happens, that happens, but actually, nothing is done. And David does this. And one of the first lessons that we have to look at in this is that whenever a situation happens, we have to deal with it. I don't know whether David felt guilty about letting, having made that decision and, and was complicit in, in what happened, but he doesn't act as he should. And I think one of the most important lessons we take from that is if there is an injustice that has been done in anything, any aspect of, of where you're leading your home or in a church or in any area, you need to act on it immediately and deal with it immediately. However painful it may be, however horrible it may be, you have to act on it. I'm not sure why David just said, well, maybe it'll blow over. How many of us have been in that situation? It'll just blow over. No. It can't. Injustice has to be dealt with by the right authority in the situation. Otherwise, what happens in a society where justice is not executed? It leads to vigilantism. 
people take the law into their own hands. I've seen a number of, of, there's a lot of footage going on at the moment about a number of countries where law is broken down and vigilantism happens. And that is exactly what Absalom does. He loved Tamar. And so what does he do? And this is where you see his brain at work. And he was a very, I have to say, he was a very amazing guy in this sense. He waited two years. Two years. Given that people's lifespan was only about 40 or 50 years, that's a long time. He waited two years to plot his revenge. Revenge is a dish best eaten cold. Well, he was the master at applying it. He waited two years, and then what did he do? He did exactly what his brother, half-brother had done. He went to David, and he said, I'm holding a feast. I'd like to invite all the brothers together. Oh, and can Amnon be one of them? And David says, why? And he says, no, it'll be nice. It's all the brothers getting together. And David thinks... Two years ago, not a problem. But the issue wasn't sorted. <clears throat> and so Absalom does exactly what Ammon did to Tamar. He traps him and he murders him on the spot. And then Absalom, because he knows, look, he's probably crossed the line this time, um, he actually heads to go and stay with his, his father-in-law um, uh, and, and is out of sight and out of town. So it's... Um, it's, it's this whole principle that you cannot avoid a relationship issue. If there's something that is there, we have to, as parents, deal with it up front. We really have to make sure that's there. David, again, curiously, is angry. He flumbusters. He jumps up and down. He makes a noise. But, you know, he had married, I mean, he had a relationship with the king, this father-in-law. He could have insisted. He was the military power of the day. He was the United States of America to <coughs> Afghanistan. He could have gone and said, I want my son-in-law back. I want him back, and I want him back now. But what does he do? Nothing. Again, he lets it go. Second chance. And again, David was complicit in allowing it to happen. <coughs> out of sight is not out of mind at all. We then have a classic situation. Another person gets in on the act. And again, this if we just look at politics or you study history, you'll always see this happening somewhere along the line. There's a guy called Joab. I don't know how many of you know who Joab was, but he was a soldier. He was a general. And Joab, to his credit, never ever wanted to be number one. But he was never ever going to be threatened in his number two position. He was going to be number two whether it killed him or, in his case, whether he had to kill other people to be there. It was him <coughs> who supported David in killing off one of the other generals. It was him who did that with Bathsheba. He was a very, very capable man, very cunning, and um, he also perceived that David was very sorry that Absalom had, this had happened with Absalom. And I think David is recognizing that out of all his children, Absalom probably had most what it took. And yet he has the situation. He's stuck. He's in exile. And so what happens <clears throat> is Joab sets up, sets up a bit of a... Uh, uh, he manipulates the king. He sends in a woman who pretends some story about brothers being separated, gets David to agree to a principle, and then she says to him, but you the father. And David recognizes Joab's hand in this <clears throat> and allows Joab to bring... Absalom back. But what is the motive of Joab? 
Job wasn't motivated particularly by anything except power. And I suspect there were two motives that he was choosing. One is that he really understood that if he did this, he'd get favour with the king. The second was, I think he recognised where the future was. And I think he saw Absalom as the future, and so he wanted Absalom back and owing him big time so that he would be well positioned in terms of it. But what happens is when they get restored, or when um, Absalom comes back, he's not allowed to see the king. David keeps his distance. And I think this had to do with David saying, well, I've let you back in, but you know what? You murdered the heir to the throne. You went and killed the, the person. You took justice in your own hands. I can't, thank you, I can't allow you to come back fully restored. Otherwise, you'll be next in line for the kingship. If I do that, I, look what I'm sanctioning. So what he does is it's only partial restoration. It's only partial reconciliation. And I think the lesson here as well is that if we are going to reconcile with people in whatever way, it must be complete. If you have issues in your life or whether people in your life that's gone through and you come to that uneasy truce at weddings, Jared and Becky are getting married soon, the wedding plan, seating plan. We can't put Auntie Jo next to Uncle Frank. Because 16 years ago, there was a dispute, and we can't do something. So you end up with a wedding of, you know, two you know, camps around the place, and everybody is there gritting their teeth, being civil, just to hope. And you're saying, please make sure Uncle Fred does not get any scotch in him, because that'll be it. Okay? That was, in a way, the situation that was here. Absalom was in the city, but he wasn't restored. Reconciliation, if we're going to do it, must be complete. It must be whole. It must be that if you're going to restore, restore entirely. Clear it. David again managed it by withdrawing himself from the situation. It just was not going to do anything except lead to frustration. And this is one of the principles that happens here. Absalom was too talented, too headstrong, too clever, and too ambitious, and too ruthless to ever allow that to happen. And so what does he do? Is He knows he can't really go and take on the king. Because if he takes on the king, the king could basically boot him out or probably kill him. They probably have drawn the line. So what does he do? He attacks the man who helped him come in. Because he knows that Joab can't actually do anything about it. And so what he does is he goes and burns down a whole bunch of Joab's fields. And Joab, of course, gets a little upset over this. He comes running up and says, why are you doing this? I helped you come here. And Absalom, very cleverly, in the most politically astute brain, says, you brought me here, you didn't complete it, you better help me get there, otherwise I'm going to take out all my frustration on you. And Job realizes he's actually inherited a bit of a beast here that he can't actually control, and it shatters his thing. But what he does is Job then goes forward, does mega pleading with the king, and actually puts his political career and his generalship are at risk. It's because of that that David actually doesn't trust Job anymore. There's a breakdown in the relationship. But Absalom and David are now brought together, but through a mediator, not through someone where both of them came to a place and sorted it out. But what's important here very much is that Absalom does not repent. He doesn't say sorry. There's no record at all of him saying, I made a mistake, I'm really sorry, I'll accept it. God is not in the picture here at all. All of this is just simply political connivering, 
reconciliation for politics' sake, it's very, it lacks any sense of spiritual integrity along the way. And again now, Absalom is restored, and so what he does, he had been two years with waiting for Tamar, four years in exile, he now takes another four years to undo the throne. And what he does for four years is he's very clever again. He does what his father could not. David was, wherever maybe removed, was still king. He had a lot to do. He was the king, the general, he led everything. So Absalom does what his father can't do. And that is he goes and meets all the people on the ground. He goes off and he talks to them. He tells them how he would lead. He is a good looking boy. He's ambitious. He's clever. And he basically wins over people's hearts. The Bible says that he won the hearts of the people. And it's a whole interesting study, if you go into deeper, just of how you usurp power. The other thing which he did as well, which very cleverly, is he didn't stick to Judah, the southern part. He went to the north where there was naturally a historical rift. He exploited already a weakness and developed it from there. And he uses that then to rise in rebellion and goes and um, comes against his father. And his father is forced to react. And this is where we realize, probably more than any other time, I think it's exposed, David, for all his weaknesses, why he was appointed a king, what the reaction needed to be in a time of crisis. Um, He does three things. The first is that he never ever claims the crown to be his. In other words, he says, I'm appointed king, but I'm not going to make that my justification. The crown or kingship, leadership, was given to me by God. If anything is given to you by God, you never own it. You simply occupy it for whatever time it's there. It's never yours. And David understood that principle. He, wasn't, he never was prepared to kill Saul for it, and he was not going to prepare to do anything else around it. So the first thing he does is he acknowledges that very, very clearly. The second thing he does <coughs> excuse me, is he gives away probably his greatest political weapon, and that is the, pe- the priest brought out the Ark of the Covenant, which was you know, the Ark that all the history, God's presence, all that was wrapped up in the Ark for Israel. They bring it out to him, and he says, send it back to Jerusalem. And the reason he does that is he says, it doesn't belong to me. It belongs to the people. And if God, the ark must stay with the people. I'm not going to manipulate God in any way to force people to try and choose. It's up to God to defend me. The ark goes back, send it back, keep it there. So Absalom actually gained the ark of the covenant in his place as well. The third element is he does not enforce obedience or defend his position. He actually says to people, stay, don't necessarily come with me. If you want to come with me, fine. When people insult him, there's a couple of stories along where people throw stones at him and mock him. He doesn't get angry with them. People are saying, let me kill him, let me kill him, he's throwing stones at you. He says, no, no. If that man's doing what God requires, then fine. But I desperately need to be in a position as David that God must justify what I am and what I'm doing. And um, it's there where we see probably the clearest demonstration of a person and why the Bible speaks so highly of David. He understood that all that he had was not because of him 
or his skills, or his great ability, or his psalm writing, or his generalship, or whatever. It rested entirely on God. And Psalm 3 is probably the the psalm that most comes out um, because of this. Now, I'll ask Trevor to try and find a song that, going back into the 1980s, you know, the Dark Ages, we used to sing that was based on this, but we can't find it. Um, It was probably lost somewhere in the Ethernet. Um, But Psalm 3 is the most magnificent psalm. And I would really encourage everyone, if ever you are in a position where you are feeling very abandoned, very alone, really feeling that, God, that the pressure is there, whether that is as a father or as a parent, whether that is in, 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 in times of leadership, whatever it is. This psalm is just probably the most wonderful psalm to remember. Lord, how they have increased to trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help from him in God. But you, O Lord, art a shield for me my glory and the one who lifts up my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousand people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone, you have, made, you have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. It's a magnificent psalm where David in that speaks very clearly of the fact that at the time of crisis, the only person who can help him is God. And the analogy is, if you dig a little bit deep into this, the psalm, are absolutely incredible. That notion of sleeping, which he talks about, actually refers in the, in the Hebrew to dying. It's actually a death. And there are many times in one's life where one feels like you're going to die because of the persecution or because of things that come against you. And he says that at that time of dying, I am awoken and the context of the awoken is resurrected. And what I really want to encourage today is that whatever failure that you're talking about, because David at this time, I cannot help but think, was in a crisis of failure. He'd messed up badly his relationship with with Absalom. He'd really allowed people the people he was given charge of, to believe things about him that weren't true. They had actually rebelled against him. He was humiliated. Absalom, when he came in, humiliated. He did humiliating things to try and mock his father and mock his, the, the previous government. And David, in the midst of that, says, I will allow God to, to kill off those things and resurrect me into something new. And I think that is probably one of the most important lessons here is that if we have any authority in life, it's God-given. If you are in a work situation or whatever, and I preached on this a while ago, whatever you have, understand it is God's gift to you. It is when you start taking it for granted and things start getting a bit ropey, where do you turn? Do you turn to your own capabilities? Or do you turn back to God and say, God, I realize this is what I have. Help me through this time. And sometimes it can be a bit humiliating. Sometimes you have to put right some things. Sometimes you have to look at yourself very hard in the mirror and say, I need to change. But at that crisis point, where does your hope lie? Where does it rest? The teeth that they speak about there, he's broken the teeth, is, is, is communicating his words. He's saying that God will silence those who speak against him. And that's really what, what was necessary in there. Um, 
Absalom at this, and to bring this to a conclusion, Absalom then <coughs> tries to pursue his father, and he forgets a very important thing, is that his dad was a great general. And so Absalom tries to go and chase after his father, gets absolutely, <coughs> um, loses his army, the whole army scattered, and actually gets on, a, I think, a donkey or a pony, and sort of heads off, trying to escape. And he gets caught up by, by his most vain thing, which was his long, beautiful hair. And he gets ended up hanging on this tree. Must have been quite a sight actually to have this big guy hanging up there by his, his head. Must have also hurt like like heck <laughs> to 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 be over there. And who enters the picture at this moment? David actually says, "Don't kill him! Don't kill him! Don't kill him!" Because David, to the last, is trying to protect relationship. He's hoping still against hope that somehow he can bring Absalom in, that he can reconcile the situation. And he says, "Don't kill him! Please don't kill him!" And who appears but Joab? And Joab, you've got to say, is pretty ruthless and pretty um, uh, uh, um, complete in when he does something. He doesn't ram one spear through Absalom. He takes three. <laughs> um, in, in murdering terms, that would be extremely gratuitous. One spear would have been enough to do the job. He rams three through him. And I wondered why he did three. And I'm sure that Job was sitting there in some way going, this is for your rebellion. This is because you cost me a lot of things in my life. You know? And um, you know, the, um, he, he was, uh, there was an act of vengeance, I think, in Job putting, putting Absalom down. And I've always puzzled at David's reaction after that. David weeps and wails and carries on. And in fact, it says the whole army got dejected because here they've won this big battle. But David starts crying. Absalom, Absalom, he weeps. He won't eat. He won't come. Why would you, um, even as a father, why would you weep so much over someone who'd done so many horrible things in undermining you and killing off people and doing everything like that? And I believe that at, at that moment it was, it was David understanding his complicity in everything. He understood that he, from the very beginning, had been part of this process. And I think there's a part of him which is saying, if only I had done differently. If only I had done differently. Absalom maybe wouldn't be here today. Absalom wouldn't have rebelled against me. Maybe I could have said. And I think it's that grief that strikes him about his role in everything. And again in our lives, there are times where maybe we have made significant mistakes. David did it with Bathsheba. He did it with Absalom. But the joy of this is, is that he realizes then that most importantly, more than anything else, is that God required him to move on. And David gets up and takes on. He listens to his counsel, takes up and resumes his role as king. Because why? He was called to be king. And we as parents and, and, and in whatever role we're doing in life, have to recognize that maybe there are points in our life where failure happens, significant failure. But you know what? Instead of hauling up the past, the Bible says whatever we do, we need to put the past behind us. Not in a blind, stupid way, but we need to deal with it, but we need to move on. We need to press on for what God has given us to do. And I think that's one of the things that I've found in my life to be probably the most profound thing, is I've realized because of Jesus, because of Christ, I have a future. I may not always have done what is right in the past. In fact, I've behaved abominably in the past. But I always have a future with Christ. That doesn't mean I have to not deal with things. That doesn't mean that I don't have to sometimes pay the consequences of some of the things that have happened in the past. 
but because of Christ I have a future. And David is exactly the same. He is a role model for us in all that we do because no matter how bad you've screwed up, you have a future with Christ. I was just reading very recently, um, just about, I'm not quite sure, there was a program on TV about the Manson murders. I don't know if any of you know about the Manson murders that happened in the 1960s. They were terrible. They were absolutely horrendous murders. But one of the guys in there, a guy called Tex, had been the instigator. He, in fact, was responsible for the murder of Sharon Tate, who was Roman Polanski's wife at the time. She was pregnant. It was terrible. It, made, it was a series of murders that corrupted and, and, and basically destroyed a lot of the, the hippie movement. It was one of the things that actually they put down as a key factor in wiping out the whole notion of the hippie movement. But he got radically saved in jail. And a lot of people will say, well, you know, you always have to be a little bit cynical about people who get saved in jail. I don't mean that in a, in a, in a, in a bad way. But often it's a notion of carrying favor or trying to get, you know, do whatever. You know, you, you, my, my, maybe I'm wrong, but my, my tenor got a little bit off. Maybe I've lived a little too long in some ways. But um, he got radically saved about four or five years after it. He committed the murder. I mean, he was, he was on death row. He only escaped death row because California suspended it. But this happened about 20 years ago. 25, it happened in 19, the late 1960s. Um, after about five years in jail, he, 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 he became born again Christian. And in that process, he started a ministry within jail. And today it is one of the most credible prison ministries. He's still technically on death row. But he has this ministry that operates throughout the prisons. It's absolutely phenomenal. When you read his testimony, when you go through, even at the lowest place, of whatever you've at. Even at a point where you may have abandoned all things, the hand of God is not so short that it cannot save. And I just today really want to encourage the parents that are here, not hopefully that any of you are going to go off and be massive adulterers and murderers, of course. Um, but um, we will, as parents, make mistakes. What Corvus prayed about, I think, was very appropriate. We do have things. We learn things. Part of the responsibility of us is to raise a generation that is better than we were. That's our response. That's my responsibility. My kids have to be better than I was. Not better in a, in a you know, goody-goody sort of sense, thank heavens. But <clears throat> that's a lot easier to do. Um, the, but better in the sense that they are more grounded in God, morally much more astute, and able to understand who God is in their life. That is our obligation. And I really want to encourage you today that no matter what the situation is, whether there is a conflict or whatever it is, God is there to resolve it and to bring you forward and to make sure that you may have made a mistake in the past, but your future in him is secure if you take the appropriate action at the appropriate time. And that is to resolve, to reconcile and resolve conflict in life, to repent and to move on. And with that, I thank you. And... Um, I'm sure we are eagerly awaiting. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for keeping your kiddies under control. Thank you, Becky, for keeping Jared under control. And um, if I could just pray very quickly for you, and then I think we can just move forward to to get food. Father, I just want to thank you that the one thing that stands true, no matter that we change or history change or whatever happens in life, this was written, Lord, 3,000 years ago. You are the same God you were then, you're the same God you are today, and you are the same God in our future. And Lord, I want to thank you that there is no situation that you are not able to reach into. Your hand is indeed not too short that it cannot save. And Lord, we ask just through the power of your Holy Spirit today that you come and just remind us that you are our Heavenly Father, 
that at any time and any situation we can turn to you and that you are there through the power of your spirit to enable us to move on and to take on the future you have for all of us. We thank you for the children, Lord, that we're here today. We pray in line with Corbus and everything else being shared, just your blessing on them to bring them, Lord, to a place of knowing you and living out their lives in a meaningful and purposeful way. I just ask you to bless this final social time, Lord, and um, thank you, Lord, just for being with us and, and loving us like you do. In Jesus' name, amen.